Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known fact of the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guests today, they were all part of a panel of authors who were so generous to give their time to me and our live audience in Bryant Park, where I've been hosting these weekly events with the most extraordinary writers in one of my favorite parks in New York City. And the audiences who have been showing up have really taught me so much about the kinds of questions to ask writers. So not only am I so grateful to Brian Park and to the panel of incredible authors who are on this episode today, but to all of the people who show up weekly and have the most insightful questions about the artistic process. So thank you to Grant Ginder, Jenny Mullen, Annabelle Monahan and Meredith Shore, the authors who participated in this week's panel. Thank you to all of you who keep showing up at these live events. Thank you to you at home for listening. And without further ado, here's my live event from Bryan Park in New York City. A-OK. So today I have Jenny Mullen, author of City of Lies, <laughs> Meredith Shore, author of As Seen on TV, Annabelle Monahan, author of Nora Goes Off Script, and Grant Ginder, author of Let's Not Do That Again. Welcome all to this live podcast recording of Little Known Facts. Welcome to all of you. Thank you for joining us. Um, you know, I heard you guys having a conversation before we started recording about the title of this event, which was called Beach Reads, I think in the Reading Room Brian Park website that was telling us all about this event. And I've been thinking a lot about, like, what does that mean? Where does that come from? Does that sort of somehow judge the level of the literature that we're reading by calling it a beach read? And I just want to say, to me, it means a story that I get so deeply engrossed in that I forget for a little while my real life problems or the real life issues of the world, which doesn't mean to say any of these stories haven't deeply reflected the moment we're living in, in this society. Like all of these books are so of today. Um, it's extraordinary in terms of how much they hit on sort of emotionally and culturally what we're all grappling with in all of these different ways. So bravo for taking the term beach read and making it something deep and beautiful beyond escapism in a, in a fluffy sort of way. So thank you for your books. I think what would be really fun, many of you here may have already read some of these books, which is why you're here to meet this incredible team of talented authors. Authors. But can we just go through and maybe each of you just read the first paragraph or any paragraph that that you want to share. And then I'm going to ask you one million questions about your books, your process and what brought us all here today to celebrate you. So do you want to start, Annabelle, with, sure. with something from Nora Goes Off Script? Welcome, Annabelle. Sure, thank you. Um, I'm going to start with page three, just to keep you guys guessing. And I'm going to ask you to get so close to the mic, you think you're too close to the mic. I'm so close to this mic. <laughs> okay. All right. I stand on the porch now, taking it all in before the movie crew arrives. Pink ribbons, then orange, creep up behind the wide-armed oak tree at the end of my lawn. The sun rises behind it differently every day. Some days it's a solid bar of sherbet that rolls up like movie credits and fills the sky. Some days the light dapples through the leaves in a muted gray. The oak won't have leaves for a few weeks, just tiny yellow and white blooms pollinating one another and promising a lawn full of acorns. My lawn is its best self in April, 
particularly in the morning when it's dew kissed and catching the light. I don't know the science behind all of it, but I know the rhythm of this property like I know my own body. The sun will rise here every single day. Do you want to, before we move on to Meredith, I want to do like, so people can hold it in their heads as they go through, give us like the elevator pitch about what your book is about. I've really practiced this. Here goes. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Nora Hamilton is a made-for-TV romance writer, so think the Hallmark Channel, who has just spent a decade supporting her deadbeat husband and her two children by writing these romance movies. And her husband divorces her, and she writes a more serious screenplay about their divorce. And it's partially filmed on location at her home, and she falls in love with the man who plays her husband in the movie. That's Perfect. It. Thank you. Perfect. God, it's so hard. <laughs> but you did it. So why don't we reverse it? Do the elevator this pitch and then feels like a great read. Jason Biggs vehicle. I'm yeah. just going to put it out there and we'll talk later. <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. Let's do, do elevator, elevator pitch, pitch first, first and then read. Sure. Um, As seen on TV is a lighthearted romantic comedy that takes all of the small town romance tropes that readers have come to expect and turns them completely on their heads. 25-year-old Adina Geller is a lifelong Manhattanite who is fed up with city life and obsessed with all things Hallmark movies and Gilmore Girls and small towns. So when she has the chance to go to the small town of Pleasant Hollow on the story that she thinks will make her lifestyle journalism career, she expects to find quirky, friendly locals who are set and united against the evil real estate developer from the city. Cozy festivals, um, homemade pie, and maybe even a cute small town, single, hot veterinarian or mayor or handyman. Only when she arrives in Pleasant Hollow, she finds that it's nothing like television led her to believe. The people are not united against the real estate developer. They're not very pleasant at all. There's no seasonal festivals on the calendar at all. There's no pie anywhere. And the only man who shows interest in her is a fellow Manhattanite who works for the real estate developer that she hoped to bring down. (laughs) Perfect. Do you mind reading for us? Thank you. I will. So I'm going to start at the beginning. Maria, forget, I was going to make a sound of music joke, but I think it would fall flat, so forget (laughs) about it. The TV screen zooms in on the face of a young Jennifer Hudson, a moment after Carrie Bradshaw had asked why she moved to New York City. To fall in love. I groaned, even though I'd known the line was coming. Mistake number one, Louise from St. Louis, but you'll find out soon enough. From her spot on the couch, my mom looked over her shoulder with wide eyes. You're home early. How was it? I hung the denim jacket I hadn't needed in the hallway closet. Mother Nature, in loud and clear opposition to the unofficial end of summer, had shown us who was boss with record-breaking 90-degree temperatures days after Labor Day. My date stood me up. Maybe he fell off a city bike and twisted his ankle. Or perhaps he liquefied in the sun. Don't know, don't care. I hadn't expected a first date with a guy I'd met on Hinge to lead to marriage, a committed relationship, or even a second date. At 25 years old, I'd been dating in New York City long enough to know better, but was showing up too much to ask? Thank you. Welcome, Jenny. Hi. Hi. So can you tell us a little bit about the book and then jump into any part of it you want to share with us? Yes. Okay, so my elevator pitch originally for this book was it's Devil Wears Pr- it's like the Devil Wears Prada if Anne Hathaway and Meryl Streep had sex. That <laughs> was my jumping off point. And it later became a story about a young mom that is dealing with sort of the erasure of self that happens when you have children and grappling with how you know can can I be the mom I always wanted when I didn't have the mom I always wanted she moves to a new city and um, she falls under the influence of this very prominent mommy influencer in Manhattan who kind of takes her under her wing and shows her a world of dog weddings (laughs) underground supper clubs fashion uh runway fashion shows with people you know just showing off their nipples and it's a really interesting uh, journey she goes on filled with sex lies and packing tape 
And I think it's sort of a satire of our the Instagram culture that we find ourselves living in, the pics or it didn't happen culture. I'm just going to read a, I guess, an excerpt, okay? Sunlight seeped through the cracks of a, of a few pre-war spice warehouses, still waiting to be converted into $10 million lofts. Men pulling breakfast carts lined with donuts and everything bagels ambled across the vacant cobblestone streets, expertly avoiding potholes and sidewalk scaffolding. Ilya had explained to me that Tribeca was always under construction, always reinventing itself. The neighborhood was like a cat who'd lived nine lives, or Madonna before she started adopting all of those Malawi children. <laughs> what had started out as farmland had morphed into a hub of wealthy white people crammed into brightly lit buildings as if afraid of the dark. The end. Yeah. <laughs> Grant, pitch me your book. Okay, so so I'm gonna riff off of, of what Jenny said. Mine is not if if Anne Hathaway and Meryl Streep had sex. It's it, I think it's Veep if Veep and Succession had sex. Perfect. Um, Perfect. Which like I don't know how that would work. They're shows. I'm um, picturing it perfectly. Okay, great, great. So it worked. Um, so it, it follows the last few weeks of a congresswoman named Nancy Harrison's campaign for Senate in New York. Um, she's supposed to be a shoe in, but it's it things have been a little more chaotic than she expected and they become much more chaotic when a video emerges and goes viral of her estranged daughter Greta throwing a champagne bottle through a very famous bistro in Paris at the behest of extremist protesters. So um, so to save her campaign, or as a last-ditch effort to save her campaign, Nancy dispatches her very loyal son Nick to retrieve Greta and bring her home. So to that end, the book is about um, it, it, it's about as much as um, uh, family dynamics and family dysfunction as it is about political dysfunction, which I think we all probably are pretty familiar with by now. Um, and so the, the section that I'm going to read is, is actually a, from Nick's point of view. Uh, Nick, when he is dispatched to retrieve his sister, is uh, teaching at NYU and also working on a musical about the early life of Joan Didion. Uh, so he's obsessed with Joan Didion. Um, <clears throat> all right, here it goes. The observation does raise an interesting question. How long is too long to live in New York? Is it when you've eaten at all the restaurants, snuck out early from every party, dated all the men? Joan left after eight years. When she turned 28, she discovered that everything that was said she seemed to have heard before and that it was distinctly possible to stay too long at the fair. All places have their stories, their peculiar mythologies that make them tolerable. But one day a person begins to see past those myths and instead recognizes the buildings and the streets and the tired faces that populate them for what they really are. New York is no different. It's something that Nick has been thinking about with increasing regularity. Lying in bed after a bad date, he often imagines himself elsewhere. He tells himself that all it takes to live in this city is to move here, which means that all it takes not to live here is to leave. He could go somewhere quiet like Vermont or Sonoma, a place where subway lines won't conspire against him and where breakfast isn't a bacon, egg, and cheese from the bodega on the corner, a place that isn't so miserable in the rain. The problem with those alternatives is that they, while they do not have the bodegas and the subways, they also do not have the bodegas and the subways. <laughs> He'd be trading one set of myths for another and frankly, he's perfectly content with the one that he's got. Put it another way, the allure of everywhere else is very attractive until he realizes that everywhere else can never surprise him like New York. It was really amazing to see that these four books, which were in some ways chosen at random because of, of who you all are as authors, um, how much New York is a character in all of your stories, whether it's someone leaving New York, whether it's someone rushing back to New York to find a love. Um, I want to just go, maybe I'll start with you, Grant Ginder. Um, tell me, the, like, where were you when you had the idea to write this book? What ha like, what was the light bulb moment? Sure. Take us back. Sure. So, so the idea came to me, I think, in 2018. 
uh, I was looking around and um, was was shocked by the political dysfunction that I was seeing. Um, and I think I had like a lot of us, I had naively always taken like American democracy for granted. Um, and I saw it being threatened from left, right and center. So I started asking myself, like, how far would I a very well seemingly reasonable person go to protect this thing that I hold so dear and how much would I bend my own ethics and morals to do that which is a question that this family ultimately faces in the book and so that was sort of like one part of it and then the other part of it was and perhaps the stronger part was the politics of family have always been very interesting to me the negotiations that we make between siblings the negotiations that we make between uh, parents and children and so I thought okay well again, to use Jenny's metaphor, if the politics of family had sex with the politics of politics, what would that look like? And I came up with this book. Okay, but like, are you in the shower, like adding conditioner and going, okay, so that's the idea, right? That's like the general, I'm really, I can't stop thinking about the state of America and also the state of my family and how do I marry those two things together? But literally, like, are you brushing your teeth when you're like, I have... There's a major event. There are a few major events in this story. All of you have like mastered the idea of like the surprise turn where we're like, oh my God, no one saw that coming. When did you know, how did you figure out this story specifically? Okay, so the event that I believe you are referring to happens like four fifths of the way through the book. And that that literally came to me in the shower. You okay. were absolutely right. <laughs> I, I was, I had like. Should I'll, we tell them that I was there with you at the yes. time? Is that weird? <laughs> yes. I, okay. I, Sorry. It's so funny that you say I, uh, I was like washing my hair, which if you read the book and you get to that moment, you're going to be like, something's wrong with him. <laughs> that that came to him in the shower. Uh, but, but it did. I, I had mapped out the, the first, like the, the, the book has five acts um, and they're called act one, act two, act three, act four, act five. And I had mapped out kind of all the way up to the end of act four. And I really had no idea where it was going to go from there. And then you're absolutely right. It just kind of hit me where I was like, oh, well, that's what they have to do with him. And then we went from there. And that is what happened. Annabelle, you have this this, um, person at the center of your book, which is we are all trying to imagine who does this author think is the sexiest man alive or who is who is the biggest movie star who walks into her house and suddenly is you know drinking coffee out of her Mr. Coffee so can you tell us who you thought it was for you Uh, he may be here today I don't know is it Jason Um, Biggs uh, (laughs) you know we could do this all day it's like it'd be like a bingo game um, I can picture Leo, the former sexiest man alive. Like, if I was an artist, I could draw him. He is someone in my in my mind, uh, but he is not an actor. He is not a real person. Um, and what I find really fascinating is that in the book, and not not intentionally, but I don't really describe him. He's just dark and tall. And everyone who reads it thinks that it is exactly a specific person and it's different to everyone because it's sort of like you bring your own fantasy into this book. So he is not real. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Jason Biggs. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. We got him. Uh, Jenny, I've been thinking so much about how your book is really focused on Instagram, right? Like like this woman, this Tribeca mom, who we all know, if you live in New York, like the same way she, uh, Annabelle describes it's whatever we think the sexiest man alive is, we all have in our mind who we think the like major Tribeca mom is, who we are all following as mommies and sort of this aspirational mommy blogger, um, and who we find out her to really be is extraordinary by the book because it sort of lifts the veil of this idea of perfection that doesn't exist. What is your relationship now as you've written a book that is all about sort of how Instagram and social media has sort of taken over and makes us question who we are on the daily or not always feel as good about ourselves as we want to. But now you have to promote a book, right? Instagram is also this social media tool that is how many people ended up here today, right? And and you are so open in how much you share um, hilariously about the truth of your parenting and the daily life in your house. But what is your relationship now to Instagram? And is it different than it was before you wrote City of Likes? 
Well, I knew that my phone was a problem when I was hiding it from my children like it was a cigarette. I think when you're <laughs> hiding something, you know, that's probably the first sign that you have a problem. And I knew that I was addicted to this need for external validation that was giving me all of the things that you know my narcissistic parents didn't <laughs> and i think that that is you know it really is i call myself a millennial loosely because i'm actually not one i'm actually a gen xer but oh, by two years guys but i do think it's a millennial mom issue where you know we had these baby booming parents who were more interested in themselves than they were us and we have found in instagram and these online platforms a way to validate ourselves not only as mothers but just as as women in the world and so yes i owe my entire career to social media twitter launched my writing career i i got my first book deal off of tweeting because so, you wrote funny tweets that yeah, people it really democratized to. comedy for female writers in la in i would say like the mid-aughts it changed my life uh and it really gave me a voice so I am forever grateful, but I knew, I knew it started to become almost a narcissist that I needed to feed in order to be fed. And it still is to a certain degree, because if I stop, the light goes out on me. And unfortunately, as somebody in the entertainment industry, your value is based on that little number that hangs over your head. Mm. So it is a double-edged sword where I wrote a book that is somewhat a condemnation of of Instagram, but I need Instagram to sell the fucking thing. Right. <laughs> to I be know. perfectly candid. It's an incredible catch-22 yes. in that way. Um, Meredith, I want to ask you, because what was really sweet to me um, is the relationship, not not just between your main character and, and the people she meets in, in the town that she goes to, but it starts with a mother-daughter relationship. So can you talk a little bit about that relationship and how I watched other interviews with you and your parents are present in the world yes and in Thanks. the book that's not the case of the mother and 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 I don't recall is she a widow she is a widow yes right. so talk a little bit about that fantasy and how you came up with that beginning relationship where we meet both of them at the same time well, I wanted my character to be like obsessed with Hallmark movies in small towns, and I needed a reason why, not just that she likes to watch them on Saturday nights. And so I had, I wanted to have her have like this fantasy relationship of her parents meeting, being high school sweethearts in this small town, in a way that Adina herself does not have that big relationship in her life. She's single and she's struggling. So she puts her parents' relationship on a pedestal, especially because her father passed away when she was only three years old. So she doesn't really have many memories of him hmm. and a lot of it is romanticized. But the relationship between Adina and her mother, I actually, it actually came to me because I am the same age as the mother in the book and I don't have children, but I imagined if I lived in the city, which I do, and I had a, ch a woman, I had a daughter who was about in her, in her mid-20s, so I had her when I was in my early 20s. What kind of relationship I would have if it was basically like the two of us against the world, I'm single, my husband passed away and I haven't remarried or been with anybody substantial, and she's, and we live together and we're both grown-ups, mm -hmm. we're both adults. I felt it would be a very open friendship relationship where they could talk honestly about everything, about disappointments in life, about sex, about the world, about politics, where there, it's a clear line between whose mother and whose daughter, but it's also a very, very strong friendship based on just open honesty. I wanna ask you guys, and feel free to jump in, you know, many people are here today, A, because they read your books or have read previous books of yours and already are fans, but also because they're interested in writing. And I think we all have a lot of different preconceived ideas, often from film and television, of what the process is. And there's always, especially in movies, this editor person, right? Like the editor. And it's all about the editor and what the editor thinks and how the editor thinks the end of the book should be, whatever. So I'm not... Uh, a writer, but I so I have some, you know, the way I was guessing who the movie star is. Mm -hmm. I have some vision of like who all your editors are. So can you talk a little bit about 
I mean, obviously, at some point, you all either pitched or wrote on spec something that was so exciting to someone that they were like, we want to help you put this book out in the world. None of you are self-published, from what I understand, of your four books. So talk about the process of working with an editor on these really personal stories. And anyone can jump in. We can go down the line if you want. Well, I'll start because mine is here. Oh. <laughs> Can your James, editor wave? James, you want to wave? Uh, James. James. <laughs> so I feel a little handcuffed. Um, but you also went first. So James and handcuffs are part of it. Handcuffs are part yeah. of it. No, um, it is, uh, and feel, to, feel free to jump in, James. Um, it's a it's a very collaborative process. I I'm, this is the third book that that James and I have worked on together of mine, and I'm it's I'm I'm amazed each time by just and I mean this in the best way how collaborative it is. You I think at least for me I when I go into writing a book I have a very clear idea of the story that I'm trying to tell, but then when I turn in that first draft there's a lot of uh, shit around it that's getting in the way of that story a lot of a lot of sort of like loud stuff and distractions that's getting away from the heart of the story and my editor and i promise i'm not just saying this he's because he's here um has a remarkable ability to i think see before i do even the story that i'm trying to tell and directing me to that story um so it's a, it's a really incredible experience um i i you know uh, it's cliche to say, but it, it feels kind of magical when that's happening. Usually, though, when I first get his first editorial letter, I, like, tear it up and then go to my husband and say, well, I just think I need a new editor. He's just, like, doesn't get it. And my <laughs> husband's like, okay, well, take two days, and I do that, and then, and then, then I the come around. And then the scotch tape and Exactly, then I have to, like, tape together. it back together, right, yeah. in the way that I want. Uh, and then we go from there. <laughs> when you, Jenny, let me just ask you, we can just go down this way. Often, I come from the theater, and often sort of when when the first blush of a play comes to all of our hands in workshop form, the, the, the playwright has put in everything. It's before anything's been pared down. It's like, here's everything I write, and now we'll workshop this and see what we do need, what we don't need, what we need more of. Is the first draft sort of like that in novel form too, where you write everything, or are you editing already as you write it? Oh, I think both. I mean, this was my first time writing fiction. So okay. when I tell you that it was a mess in the beginning, I truly mean it was a mess. I did not know, you know, the st I didn't understand the structure. I come from film and TV. I, I come from memoirs. And um, I just wasn't sure how to sort of tell the story. And I, And also, I think one of the big differences between memoir and fiction is that you have to earn every move your character makes in a way where, you know, with memoir, I'm just like, I went to Morocco because I wanted to meet the women that wove the rug in my apartment because I thought they might help, help me understand motherhood. You know, I don't need to earn that. You just already know I'm crazy. But in a, <laughs> the book like this, I have to explain why somebody like Meg would get swept up in this almost Svengali-like character uh, like Daphne and almost, you know, stray from her husband and her family and leave everything behind to what, kind of follow. What's also really amazing in Jenny's book, kind of coincidentally or not, I don't know what your relationship to Ukraine is, but to read a book where, where her husband, Ilya, mm -hmm. and his family are from Ukraine, it's yeah. amazing how that now colors the experience I had reading it mm -hmm. very differently than perhaps a year ago had I picked up and your it's book. it's crazy because, yeah, I did write, I did start this process four years ago and I just like the idea that he was an outsider with access to the inside a gatekeeper if you will in New York and I was thinking about you know Coney Island and the Russian population there and and so that's kind of why I chose that for him to be Ukrainian um, so it was slightly random in was, terms of oh it, yes and yeah. yet so poignant right now out. now Incredi I seem just like a prophet I guess <laughs> I don't know <laughs> had anyone had COVID in your book that would have been right, that like, would have really wow. exactly. exactly exactly do you can you two share any like sparkly moments between you and your editor that you're like oh this is why I need or have an editor well there are many reasons why I needed an editor and mine is here as well Leah I know she's over there she's waving 
I think that sometimes I, my books are rom-coms, and I think that sometimes when I think something is funny, I just keep pushing that same thing over and over again. And I think my editor kind of like pairs me down. We don't need that much of this. You know, it's repetitive. But she also takes some of the things that I have and makes them make sense in the world right now. Like actually in my second book, we have a whole issue with um, the Great Resignation, which I hadn't even thought about. It's just a lot of my, my work is just funny or on there, and she helps me shape it into an actual book. Have you ever had um, a disagreement where you sort of fought for something, or do you generally just think of it like, okay, this is an outsider objective opinion and I'm going to trust it? For the most part, I think Leah is always right. So I've basically just agreed with her, and, and I have actually in my heart agreed with her. There might be a, a turn of phrase or a line that I thought was funny that she might not have, and I kept it anyway. But I mean, we're talking on the sentence level. For the most part, I have done everything that she has recommended that I do. Did you pitch Nora Goes Off Script uh, having written any sample chapters or did you just how did it start for no, you so this went out whole it was a finished manuscript um and my editor who is not here um i will just say she's a genius like in that way that people can bend metal with their brains like she it's sometimes i have to get off the phone with her because i'm like i think i'm like starting to melt um but this book came to her practically finished um there were a few edits she made me write a sex scene and we went back and forth about that. She insisted adults have sex. I said, I'm not sure. That's not been my experience. And she's a little younger than I am. She won. So I spent three weeks writing the one paragraph of sex that you're going to read in this book. You're not going to learn anything. It is really, you're, you might blink and miss it. Um, but that was really the only thing with this book. This, my second book, which I'm finishing right now, um, came to her as a hot mess. And she said, please delete 50% of this. Here's where your story is. And it's, just, it's sort of like what Grant's saying. Like, she was there to unearth what the story was from all of the nonsense that I was typing. And that, I mean, I, that is un invaluable to, like, have a person reach into you and pull out what you're trying to say. Because sometimes it's really hard to say what you're trying to say. So... She's amazing. So I want to kind of flip this all on its head because these are sort of the things that worked well, right? Like you had this editor who was really helpful. You had an idea and it actually was a book in the end. I'm sure you all have drawers with tons of ideas for things that are not going to become finished products for whatever reason. So what is the part of the process that you hate the most? about writing and specifically with this book what was the thing that you were like i hate this so much oh me yeah oh gosh um i think that going back to sort of what we were talking about earlier with the, this twist that um, that happens, or this event that happens four-fifths of the way through the book was unlike anything that I had ever written before, and the aftermath of it was unlike anything I had ever written before. And so the last fifth of the book um, was was really terrifying to write. I don't know if I would say it was the worst process or the worst part of the process, but it was, it was definitely the most daunting part of the process um, in the sense that I just, I didn't know... I didn't know if I could pull it off, sort of logistically, narratively, from a character perspective, there were so many balls in the air that, that keeping them up um, was really, really daunting. It ended up being really fun, uh, I think more fun than I expected, which again, when you get to that part of that book, you're going to be like, this guy is sick, but, um, but it was daunting, it was hard. Well, I think so much, right, especially for newer writers, you're all much more formed along in your careers this idea of write what you know mm -hmm. is so much of how you start like you were Jenny talking about memoir and you're like you can like it or not like it but it's truthful like yeah. this is me and this is what I did and so imposter syndrome creeps into all of us in all sorts of ways so how did you sort of deal with that like moving into this other lane and and feeling ownership of it and and what was the part that you hated the most in the process 
Well, for me, I, I mean, I've really bled, like, real blood for this book. And I can't even tell you. When I first took it out, I pulled the submission. And I guess that's a terrible thing to do. I now know. I've been told. Can you explain what that means to people who aren't in the I, literary world? We took out the first submission uh, in 2018 I, or maybe 2019. and um, No, 2018. And... I had I had written the manuscript and it was sent out and I started getting passes which was I was surprised because I had been with big houses in the past I'd had two successful books but for whatever reason you know people didn't want a book about Instagram there was a lot of pushback and I don't know if people wanted fiction from me specifically uh, that was another issue um, and I, so I had to look at the manuscript and I had to really be honest with myself, like, is it ready? Or am I just too impatient? And I looked at it again. I had my husband look at it as well. And I decided ultimately it's not good enough. It just like wasn't ready. I thought it was because I, I am a pleaser and I had uh, another writer who was sort of telling me it was ready. If she was in my life saying, it's great, it's ready. I, yeah, you're, everybody's going to want this. But she was wrong, and it really wasn't ready. So I pulled it off the market, and I was devastated. But also, I guess, for me, I feel like I have to suffer on some level to feel worthy of the success. And I knew that when... I got the when I felt that rejection and I was told no you can't have it that just sort of strengthened my resolve because those are the stories that I want to tell those are the only stories I want to read I want to be the hero up against insurmountable odds and so when I was basically passed on by all of these houses I just doubled down I went back I took another year I rewrote the book and I took it out again and when I took it out that time the capital was being stormed and that time the and the feedback at that point was either one we've seen this before so we're not even going to look at it now or two i don't know if in a post-covid world a story about privileged women in lower manhattan doesn't read as tone deaf and to that i said you know this is my truth this is the story that I have to tell because it's the story that I need to hear. This is really, I mean, people say, oh, it's its a fun, sexy beach read, but it's also all of my darkest fears. So I knew no matter what, I'm getting this book out in the world, even if I do have to self-publish it, I ended up finding a very small publisher who, by the way, this is his first book he's ever published. So that journey in itself was awesome. Wow. Yeah. It, Insane. I mean, awesome. I'm still having PTSD from it, but it is here today. Yes. And it's for sale. <laughs> Wait, I have a quick question. When you put it out on the market again. Yes. Was City of Likes the title it had the first time you put it out? Well, that was one of the issues. I wouldn't give up the title. I refused. I was like, that's the title, man. No way. I know they said, oh, you can't take out the same title. But I, I just Apparently, did. you can. <laughs> Meredith, was there a part of writing that book that you were like, I hate this. This is the part. For some people, it's punctuation. I mean, it's all sorts of things. But, like, it, it doesn't have to be some deep, dark, you know, okay. devastating moment. <laughs> well, in general, writing this book was the best escape because it was during the pandemic. I live alone in the city. I was working from home. I had nowhere to go out because nothing was opened. And so I got to write this really fun, lighthearted book and like help me escape and go to a small town where I could be outside and it's not freezing. And it was just, it was really, really a pleasure. However, when we got to the copy edits, oh, after doing like two rounds of developmental edits and line edits, and then we got to copy edits and they are brutal. My copy editor was amazing, but I like I hated her because I had to figure out like time. So what if it was like noon when I woke up and now it's like 10 o'clock in the morning on the same day? Why? Well, who cares? No one's going to notice that. <laughs> there were just so many like little inconsistencies like that. Logic. And I didn't want to write logic. I wanted to write romance and comedy and, and fun things like that. But thank God that my copy editor was so thorough because she really caught a lot of inconsistencies. But yeah, that was definitely my least favorite part of the process. 
I would say that my least favorite part is when you finish the book, you've written a whole book and it's all done, and they say, can you write a synopsis? I'm like, I just wrote the whole book. Now you're going to have me make it into a page. And then there's always, it's like every few days, it's like, can you give me a 200-word synopsis? Can you do it in 400 words? Can you? And it's... A book is a whole organism, and it's to describe it. I mean, even the elevator pitch gives me so much stress. Um, I'm I would sorry. rather, I, rather I, uh, someone no. made me say that. No, I, I was going to throw something. <laughs> no, but I would rather write a whole book than give you one page and tell you what it's about. Same. I just find that to be excruciating. I agree. All right, let's do a speed round. Let's go back to you, Annabelle, as a child. Favorite book. Uh, I read a lot of Jackie Collins as a child. It was inappropriate. <laughs> Did you just see that documentary about no. Jackie? There's an incredible Jackie Collins documentary out that you are going to love. Oh, it's incredible. I can't wait. It's incredible. Yeah, I think it's on Netflix. It's fantastic. And oh. it got me through many weeks of the pandemic. Oh, gonna I'm it. in. Um, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Because like Margaret, I really wanted my period, and I think I did lie to my friends and say I had it when I didn't yet. <laughs> Thank you, Judy Bloom. Yes, Judy Bloom for sure. Jenny? I was reading a lot of uh, Shirley MacLaine out on a limb, Richard Ooh. Bach, Richard Cross Forever, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. I don't know, guys. <laughs> Hence why I was in the memoir space, maybe. <laughs> I'm going to give two. When I was like in the fourth, I think the book that really made me want to become a writer was Tuck Everlasting. I don't know Ooh. if anyone read that book, but I like loved that book as like a fourth grader. And then I was like the nerd in high school that loved A Tale of Two Cities. I would like always, I would be like, you know, like talking about it in a class. Everybody would be like, this fucking guy. <laughs> um, so like, uh, yeah, I, I read a lot of Dickens. When you started this process, did you have a beginning and an ending for the book in mind before you sat down to write? So as I, I for this book in particular, it was I had it up until that moment when this thing happens. And like up until that moment, it was like very plotted out. Like I had, I knew it was going to start with, with the daughter throwing the champagne bottle. I knew what the first act was going to be. I knew what the second act was going to be. I knew what the third act was going to be. I knew what the fourth act was going to be. And then I like kind of like, you know, threw my hands up in the air. But I am generally an outliner. I, um, these writers that can just sort of like start with the premise and see where it goes, like, like hats off to them. Like for, if I did that, it'd be a real Jesus take the wheel situation. I, um, I'm, I'm very much kind of a plotter and an outliner and I need to see the macro picture of something when I write it. Jenny, was there someone in your life like the woman in this book who, who your main character kind of becomes, um, I don't know, super enchanted by and invested yes. in? Yes. And are you still <laughs> in relationship with that person? Um, yes, I talked to her. Um, I, I, yes, I, yes, I still talk to her. So when you're writing, and this is true for all of you, obviously these are all, I mean, they're not memoirs, but there's a little bit of ourselves in everything we do. So do you go out and like, put disclaimers out did you have to call people and go listen I wrote this book and you're going to feel like maybe this is you did you ask permission and this is true for everyone um did you did you have to ask permission from people in your life to include anything in the story I've had to ask forgiveness I've written a lot about my husband's ex-girlfriend she was my muse for many years and I've had to I've written her multiple letters asking for forgiveness they have yet to be <laughs> answered. Uh, but no, yeah, I. this book, I think I was the safest because finally I could say, oh, it's not about you. It's a composite. It's many people. <laughs> what about you, Meredith? Uh, my book is completely fictitious. So there's nothing. I mean, the... The love-hate relationship with New York City, that was taken from me. My character's relationship with Judaism, uh, that was taken from me. But for the most part, no, except I do have a friend here. I had named a character Lorraine, and wasn't the greatest character. And then I realized that I have a friend named Lorraine, and they both have blonde hair. And so I did ask my friend, this, you know, do you mind if I just keep this name? It was a placeholder. I swear to God, it's not you. And she said it was fine. But that was the closest 
Mm. Are you divorced with children and married to a movie star? <laughs> None of those things are true. Um, I am very happily married with children. Um, but I, I wrote this entire book. I sent it away. It was finished. And then, of course, could you write the thing about why you wrote this book? I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> so I write that thing. And as I'm writing it, I realize that I have written the story of my childhood. And that you realize with some trepidation. It's like that dream when you're walking down the street naked. Um, I, the 10-year-old boy in this story has exactly the story of my life. Mm. And I, I did not realize it while I was writing it. Um, That's incredible. So Arthur. now it's out there. And it's funny because I don't think my family is self-aware enough to have picked up on it. They've all read it. Nobody said anything. Like, huh, that kid's just like you. Um, but yeah, that, his experience was my experience. Annabelle, you are so lucky. My mother thinks that she is every character I've yes. ever written. <laughs> My mother's dead. That's the only reason. <laughs> I want to, I have one million more questions for you guys. Um, but I also want to give the audience a moment if they have questions as well. Um, so there is a microphone two microphones. Um, so just raise your hand if you have a question and you will be found. Hi, my question is for Jenny. Okay, so after writing two memoirs and then writing this novel, was this idea, and feel that it is very personal, but maybe I'm just putting that on you, was this ever going to be a memoir? Was this idea ever like your personal experience with this whole world? And then you were like, nah, I can't do it, and you did the novel. Well, I knew, you know, I knew early on that I couldn't write another memoir without kind of exploiting my children. I feel like in the second book, Sid is like a prop. He's just a head. He's not really a, he wasn't a fully formed being at that point in time. And if I were to have written another memoir, I just felt like I would be telling his story. And he probably has his own take on all this shit so that I'm sure one day I'll I'll get an earful from him, and I didn't want to rob him of that opportunity. Um, but also, I didn't think I could be as honest if I were writing this as a memoir. Because in this book, I get into a lot of the ways that I've strayed from my husband and strayed from my family and really had... A not extramarital, but it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's there, has been a, there have been relationships in my life that have pulled me out of maybe the relationship that should be the most important. And I didn't think I could write about that as honestly if it weren't fiction. But when he listens to the podcast, well, he'll yeah, find he knows out. Now. He knows now. <laughs> Anybody else? Um, you're all a little older, maybe wiser, since you wrote the book. So if you... Um, wrote it today, would it be the same book? Exactly the same book. I have not improved. <laughs> I think so, which gives me a lot of, um, makes me feel very liberated knowing that no matter what, I believe that the book would be the same. I think so too, yes. That is a fantastic question. Um, I, yeah, I, I think so. I think I, I think I wish there are, there are political things that happen in this book that when I wrote them, I expected we would be out of that mess by now. Um, and so I wish those things I would go I could go back and change them. But I don't think we are out of that mess. And so so I would not change them. No. That actually uh, makes me think of a question is is the book's ending that I read when I read all your books? the original ending that you had thought of when you first set out to pitch or write the book. It's different for, for you. Yeah. Mine is different. I actually had written the entire book, sent it to my critique partner who loved every second of it until she got to the second half. And then she said, no, this isn't working. So I ended up rewriting the entire second half. Mm. But I think it's much better now. Are there any more questions in the audience? Hi. What one piece of advice do each of you have for someone getting ready to publish their debut novel? Get a good night's sleep starting right now. It, it, it's yeah. a lot. Um, have you written your debut novel? 
in March, congratulations. That's really exciting. Um, I, the advice I would give you is it, it comes at you really fast. Um, and I, you know, for me, I think this might not happen again. So every day I think, let me just take a minute and notice how fun this is and notice how lucky I was to get here. Um, because there's always going to be the next thing that you didn't get or the, you know, the number of likes that you didn't get one day on your nonsense that you posted. Um, so I would just advise you just to take a minute every day and say, check me out. I got a book published. I mean, it's a big deal. Uh, what Annabelle said, but also there's a lot of waiting involved. So just get used to a lot of quiet times and trust your team. Know that you might not know everything that is happening every second of the day, and there could be days where you don't hear things, weeks, but trust your team, things are happening, they know what they're doing, and don't let it turn you into a frenzy. Not that I'm speaking from personal experience or anything. <laughs> But you have a friend who went through something exactly. like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, Grant has a book that he wrote previously to Let's Not Do That Again, another book called The People We Hate at the Wedding that has been filmed and is going to be at in some big movie theater in the future starring Allison Janney, Kristen Bell, and Ben Platt, among others. Um, so let's look for that. Wow. Which is thrilling. Um Tell us a little bit about when you write a book and then someone else adapts it into a screenplay and you have to watch your baby being transformed into this other thing. Um, what was that like for you? Granted, fantastic cast, amazing, sounds dreamy. <laughs> it it was very dreamy. Uh, I think I was really lucky in that. Uh, so, so right, I didn't adapt it. And when I read the first draft of the screenplay, I was so glad that I didn't adapt it. I, I re it made me realize I had absolutely, I have no idea about anything about screenwriting. And I think I would try to do like a straight adaptation, which they didn't do. Um, thank God. Uh, but, um, but it was wild. I mean, it was it was a it was a dream come true. That the, the the screenwriters. I don't know if anyone's a fan of Bob's Burgers, but um, mm -hmm. Lind, uh, Wendy and Lizzie Molyneux are the showrunners behind Bob's Burgers and the universe of Bob's Burgers, and they did a, a, an absolutely incredible job with it. Um, what was particularly interesting was seeing the. Um, the small scenes within the book that I thought were just sort of throwaway scenes that they magnified and used in ways that I never thought you could use. Um, and then also seeing the scenes that they took out, which in, in upon reflection was like, oh yeah, that wouldn't work on a screen, right? That, that wouldn't move the story along in the same way that it moves along in a novel. And so it was really an experience in seeing that these were two entirely separate art forms. A novel is very much a thing and a screenplay is very much a thing. Hmm. And one can't just, you can't just like turn one directly into the other, right? There's a lot of thought that has to go into it. Uh, but it was, it was amazing, it was a dream come true. It's very exciting. Um, anyone else in the audience have a question? So I just have a question about process. Um, do you do you each treat this as sort of like an hourly sort of occupation where you wake up at, and you know you're going to write from nine to twelve, take lunch, do another few hours, and take dinner at five, or is it more like you just kind of like feel it feel it out, and then once you feel inspired, you're sort of burning midnight oil until you get it all out. Number one. Number two, do you actually enjoy the process, or is it more that you enjoy having written when you're looking back? And if you could just sort of give us an idea of how many days written it took you all to, to, to complete your works, I'd find that interesting also. Um, I'll just say, I wrote this during the beginning of the pandemic, you know, March, April, May, 2020, and I had nothing to do. Um, and all of my children were sleeping until noon every day. So it was a very unique moment in time where I was waking up at five in the morning and writing until noon every day, like putting in a full work day before I had to engage with anything. That was a really special time in writing and I loved it mm -hmm. and I got really deep into it. Normal life doesn't work that way. So you have a job, you have a family, you have whatever your responsibilities are, you have to, to work it in. Um, in my opinion, an hour's worth of writing, I might as well not do it mm -hmm. because it takes me so long to get in that I've really done 10 minutes of writing in an hour's <laughs> worth of yeah. writing. So, Because of I, Instagram. 
What, what, they're inst- I'm looking at Jenny. <laughs> I'm like, what's <laughs> Jenny doing? Why does she look so good? <laughs> no, so I need, I mean, if, I, if I'm really writing and, you know, thank God for a deadline because that lights a fire, um, I, I really would like to write for four hours. That's like a good work day for me. I love writing. I, th- I th- writing this book was the most fun I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm lucky that way. You know, sometimes I'm tearing my hair out, but for the most part, I really enjoy the process. I have. A th- how long? Uh, the whole thing was like a year. I don't really know. Um, I have a day job, so I have to carve out time in between, like the nine thirty to five thirty or six. So I get up early and I write before work. And then I write right after work, like immediately. I don't give myself, I don't take off my shoes or my bra or anything. I just, I have to (laughs) do it right away. I don't like to work late at night because I won't be able to fall asleep. But I have a different experience than than Annabelle about an hour. I often write on my lunch hour. And it's Mm. it's like literally an hour, probably less because I'm eating during part of that. And I find that it just, it all adds up. So I think, and I... And I also very much enjoy the process. I think I like revising something that's already on the page way more than like filling up a blank page. But the whole thing, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this if I didn't love it because it's a lot of hard work. You need a very thick skin. Uh, it's, but I, I love it. How long did it take me? This one, I would say the first draft took me about six months. And then there was editing on top of that. Hmm? No, I, I think that I'm getting better. My next one took me only four months, so we're getting there. I, I'm just obsessive in general. So when I start something, I can't not work on it. You know, even when I probably should have taken a break and stepped away, I couldn't put, I, I don't know how to put something in a drawer. I just have to keep going. I think of the work almost like a, a giant hunk of clay that I just have to keep carving, carving, carving until I finally have what I'm uh, working towards. So for me, it would be, I would take my kids to school and then nine to five, I would sit in front of my computer whether I wanted to or not and just bang it out. I like to average a thousand words a day. And if I don't hit a thousand words, I'm like really pissed off and I'm mean. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. And then once you get going, I feel like in the, the first few weeks of working on something new, you're like almost hitting it, but not. And then when it starts to flow, you can get like 1,200, 1,500. And that's when you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm on a roll. It's going to be okay. So I started off uh, as a speechwriter. Oh, it took me like four. Well, I rewrote it four times. So, but about a year each time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I started off as a speechwriter. So I, I look at, I, I kind of take that discipline into writing fiction. Um, so I'm like Jenny, I sit down. I'm also a professor at NYU. So the days when I'm not teaching, I will sit down, you know, I'll take the dog out, I'll sit down, and I'll write. Um, I also try to aim for a thousand words a day. Sometimes I hit it, sometimes I don't. Um, I'm a really I'm I'm a really anal writer, and so if the rhythm of a sentence isn't working, I, like some reader, some writers can just like write and then they go back and revise. I'm like, if the rhythm of a sentence isn't working for me, the rhythm of a sentence isn't working for me, and I have to fix it before I go on. Yes. Um, and so sometimes I'll hit 800 words, sometimes I'll hit 1,200 words, but I'm, um, but I I'm very much of a believer that like, if you can't just wait around for inspiration to to strike you, you have to actually sit down and work your way into it um and in terms of how long the book told took me to write probably about three years i am so grateful that all of you wrote these books i feel like my life is enriched by all of them i loved your books you guys in the audience here today and people listening to this podcast in their ears go by city of lies by jenny mullen as Seen on TV by Meredith Shore, Nora Goes Off Script by Annabelle Monahan, and Let's Not Do That Again by Grant Ginder, Ginder, as in Tinder. I am so thrilled that we got to be in the middle of New York City on this gorgeous summer day and just talk about my favorite thing in the world, books. So thank you, thank you, thank you thank all for you. coming. 
Thank you. Our writers are here today to sign books for you and answer your intimate personal questions that you didn't want to ask in front of everybody else. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts social media intern is Sophia Rosenbaum. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.